Sado, sado, sado. We're constantly being assailed by all that is being brought in through the eyes, ears, nose, tongue, body, and the mind. The five aggregates are always burning, never satisfied. But when the mind learns to be consistent, diligent, and willing to put in the effort to observe, these, as they arise and as they vanish, as they arise and as they vanish, and they always switch places, the predominance shifts constantly, constantly, constantly. But if we persist and we, if we are able to continue maintaining, having that observation, especially Yoni Somanasikara, which is the wise reflection, the wise attention, without attaching story to it, to these. Then we start seeing a pattern. We start seeing a pattern. And it's the same throughout. We start seeing that each of these is unreliable. We start seeing that each of these is empty. We see that each of these is unstable, undependable, and therefore impermanent. And for the mind or the heart that has been taking the Dhamma in, more and more and more and more, developing that trust, soon enough that sense of impermanence, that understanding that impermanence, I'm seeing impermanence, I'm seeing the unreliability, I'm letting, I'm being let down. We start seeing that there is this tremendous sense of suffering. Usually it manifests in the form of disappointment. After disappointment,
And if we have enough wisdom developing, we will see through these patterns and we're going to understand how, ah, why do I keep on tagging along with whatever storyline that these, say, the senses keep throwing in front of me and I bite? That's their bait and I take the bait. So when we encourage individuals to keep having the diligence, the heedfulness, it's simply to train that muscle of mindfulness so that it can stick to it and you don't buy it anymore, this, this narrative of the aggregates or the senses coming and telling you something to dissuade you, to pull you away from seeing the true nature of things. That things are unreliable, unstable, despite what you've been told, what you have told yourself, what others have told you, that things are the things that happen to us depend on conditions and therefore they will crumble leaving us with disappointment after disappointment and suffering therefore and that essentially there is no one to take the blame for any of it other than the missed opportunity missed opportunity can be termed as avidja a moment that has been allowed to pass us by. Without us having invested a little bit of wisdom into it. And then with more and more of those series of moments that are absent of mindfulness and wisdom, we get what we call a human life of a patujana, or a life of a patujana, an ordinary, uneducated, untrained being. So let us not miss any opportunities, especially when it comes to listening to the Dhamma. It is a wonderful tradition that has started from Lord Buddha. When he gave us the Dhamma, he explained to us the teaching so generously, so caringly for over 45 years. And so many individuals have attained simply by listening.
simply by listening. That has not changed. It is there. Unfortunately, many don't have the willingness to listen with an open heart, an open mind. We bring too much of our thinking, our kileshas, our defilements into the presence of the Dhamma, and they cannot coexist. The heart will recognize the Dhamma when it sees it, when it hears it. But we need to give the heart the opportunity to do so. By having the defilements stay away, at least during the time that we are exposing ourselves to the Dhamma. So I invite you to, whenever you're listening to a Dhamma talk, whenever you're reading a sutta of where the Lord Buddha gives a discourse or any one of his arahant, arya savakas, please allow the words to sink in unperturbed, undiluted, unfiltered, unscreened, and just let them fall where they may. With a sense of humility and trust. After all, if we don't have that trust, that faith, that confidence, sadha, that's the first of the five spiritual faculties, which turn into five powers, by the way. With that sadha, we bring out, we muster extra, extra, extra energy to put in and to reinvest into the process of sati, to re-engage again. Okay, I missed a few hours where I was completely oblivious. Fine, now I'm not going to miss this moment, whether it's the breath, whether it's the heart sending out metta or the mind. Just sticking to it. That is how powerful the faith can play a role in eventually bringing us all the way to Panya. So, Simply by listening to the Dhamma, countless beings attained Sotapanna stage, countless beings attained Sakadagami stage, which is the once returner. So many beings attained Anagami stage, which is a non-returner. And many who have already done their work in previous lives by simply listening, attained arahanship. So please let us not minimize the wonder that merely listening, but listening with one's heart and mind open to the words of Lord Buddha, teaching the truth, how much 
that can change one's world. So with that, I would like to have us start today's sutta, which in our uh, sutta exploration series, uh, I believe this is either week five or six, or probably five. So this comes to us from the Anguttara Nikaya, book of the eights, and it is sutta number 30. Anuruddha Mahavitaka Sutta. Anuruddha and the thoughts of a great man, or Anuruddha and his great thoughts. However, you know, different translators have used different ways of using, you know, defining it, but it's basically the same thing. Just to recap, because I mentioned a few things um, last week, even though we weren't doing sutta studies. But um, just to kind of give you a prelude or a backstory, Venerable Anuruddha was one of the princes who also became, um, uh, he went forth, so he took on the robes uh, after Lord Buddha visited, after his awakening, his home uh, town, his kingdom, and he happens to be one of Lord Buddha's cousins. So very quickly, he was able to uh, really perfect the jhanas, um, especially the fourth jhana. And uh, this allowed him to penetrate and into uh, certain abhinyas, which are psychic abilities, if you will. And he was known as the disciple par excellence with the ability to use the dibba chakru or the divine eye. So he was able to see uh, anywhere in existence, no matter which realm um, or even a human realm. So he had full access to it. So, uh, which is something that uh, one can develop. So he was, you know, he developed in that rather quickly. And he was one of those um, uh, students that really shows up in different places in the Nikayas, in the suttas. He was a diligent meditator, a humble uh, meditator, and always eager to help other students. Now, what had happened was he had reached a point where he was no longer satisfied with these skills. And one day he comes to Venerable Sariputta, and Venerable Sariputta hears him say, uh, friend, Abuso, friend, uh, Sariputta, I have the ability to see uh, across 100,000 galaxies and, you know, um, I'm able to maintain my meditation diligently because my energy is so impeccable, is so on point. I have so much energy in my meditation. And he says, but I am still struggling to attain and very quickly, um, Venerable Sariputta kind of brushes all these aside and says, friend, Anuruddha, you mentioning about these ability, uh, abilities or ability of seeing across so many galaxies is demonstrating conceit in you. Um, you telling us about um, your uh, ability to have so much energy to maintain your meditation object, etc., is demonstrating the restlessness in you. 
And you mentioning to us that you are still struggling and still have not yet attained um, is demonstrating your worry in you. So basically, uh, he's, he was very much, you know, he was a straight shooter, if you will. <laughs> very kind, though. So loving. And he says, why don't you just put all these aside and, and just focus on the deathless, the amata, dhatu, the deathless element. So he encourages him to go up and he says, that's all you need. Forget about the Dibba Chaku, these divine eye, whatever, because they don't take you anywhere other than keeping you in samsara. So it is that um, series, those series of events that have led Venerable Anuruddha to go and to meditate. And, uh, and he's diligently practicing. And while he's sitting, he has these uh, thoughts. Uh, originally seven thoughts, but then we're going to see Lord Buddha coming in and advising him uh, with more. So that is the background. So and he is staying far from where Lord Buddha was staying. But one of the, um, shall we say, habits or actions that Lord Buddha liked to engage in was to scan the world, the universe. Uh, when, I, when, when in the Dhamma, when we say the world, Loka, we're talking about everything that is um, you know, in the form or even in some cases, the formless, like even the Brahman Loka. So the Lord Buddha would uh, look and scan existence and see who is ready, who's really close. And he would usually show up there and, and, and uh, give the necessary instruction, the necessary push, the nudge to get them to see the Dhamma or to attain full arahanship. So um, that's, that's the scene. So let's begin. Anuruddha Mahavitakka Sutta. Once the Blessed One was staying at the Deer Park in the Bhesakala forest among the Sungsumara rock or peaks in the land of the Bhaggas. It was, uh, Sunsumara is uh, uh, crocodile, the crocodile rock or peak, which looked from the side when you looked at it, uh, apparently it looked like a, a crocodile. Um, so it was during that time that the Venerable Anuruddha was staying in the Eastern bamboo forest in the land of the Chaitis. While in his seclusion, the following thought arose in the mind of the Venerable Anuruddha. This Dhamma is for one with few desires and not for the one with many desires. This Dhamma is for one content and satisfied and not for one who is discontent and dissatisfied. This Dhamma is for one who looks for seclusion and not for one who delights in company or enjoys associating with others. This Dhamma is for one who is diligent with aroused effort, not for the lazy. 
This Dhamma is for one established in continuous mindfulness, not for one lacking in mindfulness. This Dhamma is for the one who has the stability of the heart, not for the distracted. And seven, this Dhamma is for the wise, not for those lacking in wisdom. So this was basically a series of uh, conclusions, if you will, that his meditation and all his years of being a bhikkhu and practicing have led him to understand. So this was his thesis. And he was sitting there contemplating these points that if you take any of these things out, the holy life cannot be lived properly. This also indicates that he was actually tasting the fruits of what Venerable Sariputta had told him. The teaching, the very brief teaching that he gave him, his friend Venerable Sariputta, this shows that he, his practice was, was bearing fruit. And you can tell when he's talking about santutti or contentment, this path is the stamma is for someone who is contented or content and satisfied that santutti that sense of ah, where the mind is no longer going out whether through the senses or being taken for a ride by the khandas the body feeling memories mental constructions constant and sense awareness or vinyana. So he was, he was going deeper, in other words. Now, meanwhile, the Blessed One, knowing the thoughts that arose in the mind of the Venerable Anuruddha, as quickly as a strong man would extend out his bent arm or bend his extended arm, suddenly disappeared from the deer park in the Bhesakala forest. And that's a usual term that we're going to see a lot throughout the Nikayas, where they use this example of as, as fast as a strong man would just extend his bent arm and pull it back. So it's like this. So it's less than a second. Um, uh, the flicker of, 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 you know, of your eyelids. Uh, um, so, you know, that's the example that they use, the metaphor that they use for... Um, in most cases, Lord Buddha disappearing from one area and then reappearing in another part of the of the universe of existence. So the Lord Buddha disappears from the deer park, uh, from among the Sumsumara peaks in the land of the Bhaggas, as he reappeared before the Venerable Anuruddha in the eastern bamboo forest in the land of the Chetis. Once there, the Blessed One sat on his prepared seat. And the Venerable Anuruddha, after paying homage to the teacher, sat on the side. So uh, I mentioned this before, but when the Buddha uh, would disappear and reappear somewhere, or actually travel physically, temporally, let's say, from one place to the next, um, most of his teacher, um, I'm sorry, most of his students advanced or otherwise, they would normally have a um, the, the seat prepared for Lord Buddha, their teacher, just in case Lord Buddha showed up. 
I guess that was also like a wishful thinking on their part, hopeful uh, that maybe, maybe, maybe the Lord Buddha would be, the teacher would be, uh, you know, feeling it necessary to present here. Uh, so that's that's one example of Anuruddha having such a seat prepared in his cave, one for himself and one for the Lord. And uh, so, and the Blessed One said this to the Venerable Anuruddha, Sadhu, Sadhu Anuruddha, it is good that you are reflecting on these thoughts of a great man, which are, one, this Dhamma is for one with few desires and not for the one with many desires. Two, this Dhamma is for one content and satisfied and not for one who is discontent or dissatisfied. Three, this Dhamma is for one who looks for seclusion and not for one who delights in company or enjoys associating with others. This Dhamma four, uh, is for one who is diligent with aroused effort, not for the lazy. Five, this Dhamma is for one established in continuous mindfulness, not for one lacking in mindfulness. Six, this Dhamma is for the one who has the stability of the heart, not for the distracted, basically Samadhi. Uh, seven, this Dhamma is for the wise, not for those lacking in wisdom. And this is where the Lord Buddha adds one more, which makes it part of the Book of Eights in the Anguttara Nikaya. So you have a lot of uh, it's numerical discourses. So here we have eight items um, in this sutta. So all the suttas have to have a relevancy to the number or listing of eight, eight items. So that's what makes this now because of this addition of one more on top of what Venerable Anuruddha had, the seven, makes it um, placed in this um, category of uh, books of, of eight. So, however, Anuruddha, you must also reflect on this eighth thought of a great man. That is, this Dhamma is for the one who delights in the non-proliferation of thoughts. The one who enjoys non-proliferation of ideas or concepts, and not for those who delight in the constant proliferation of thoughts, or the ones who enjoy the constant proliferation of ideas or concepts. We love our stories, don't we? We love our narratives. We love where they take us, the fairy tales, the things that are presenting us with different colors, different experiences, all these things. These, in Pali, they're called papanjas, mental proliferation. It just keeps multiplying like the limbs of a hydra when you cut in the Greek mythology or even in, in biology. Um, if you cut it, instead of one head of the dragon, let's say it shows up as, as two or three or seven. And then you cut those and those multiply. So thoughts are like that. Thoughts are like that. Try fighting with a thought. This happens a lot with individuals, which makes most of us nowadays, who face anxiety. 
who are unable to sleep, for example, because of worries, which come from thoughts. And many times we engage in combat with the thoughts by using more thoughts. The intention is good, but the method is completely wrong. So we love to proliferate, to add, to multiply indefinitely. But that creates this in the mind, the agitation. Because this eighth item that the Lord Buddha is adding, it is like the crown of all the rest, all the seven points that Venerable Anuruddha had listed. Because if you have this, then uh, arahatship will not be happening. In fact, the other ones are also going to get agitated and perturbed. Hence, the Buddha's insistence on Venerable Anuruddha also using these, uh, all using this on top of the others as his guide to push forward, because he still was not an arahant yet, Venerable Anuruddha. And Lord Buddha continues, in this way, Anuruddha, whenever you reflect on these eight thoughts of a great man, then for as long as you wish, by secluding the mind from sensual desires and unwholesome states of mind, you will enter and abide in the first jhana, which brings with it joy and pleasure that is the result of seclusion. While the mind is still accompanied by thinking and pondering, what this is saying is, so long as the person is engaged with likes and dislikes, lusting after things, whether ideas, whether physical or not, intellectual, mental, emotional, whatever, uh, or dislikes, anything that makes the person be disgusted by something, so long as there is that emotional, mental investment into these sensibilities, if you will, then the mind is perturbed. You're still caught in the mundane. So you cannot step foot, if you, if, you know, for using a term, you cannot experience, in other words, the first jhana. Because you're too locked into the physical world or, or the just kama loka or the sensual world. They cannot coexist at that point. So it's a supraman. You're going higher uh, than the mundane. So, but in this state, which is the first jhana, there there still is uh, the the subvocal speech, meaning thinking and pondering. You can still practice. You can still say words. Oh, what what is this? What what what's happening? Oh, this is interesting. You know. For each person is different, of course, but uh, in essence, the pattern is the same, the presence of vitakka vichara, or thinking and pondering. Moving on. Further, Anuruddha, whenever you reflect on these eight thoughts of a great man, then for as long as you wish, by going beyond thinking and pondering, you will enter and abide in the second jhana. So now the person goes, they let go of their attachment to the mental attachment to thinking and pondering. Mindfulness is there so that you're aware of what's happening. You're seeing. And suddenly you notice there's no thinking and pondering. Ah, that's where meditators usually start to kind of get the whiff that there are 
in the second jhana uh, <laughs> realm, if you will, uh, with the where the heart is internally stabilized and tranquil and brought to a single point, which brings with it joy and pleasure that is the result of concentration. The joy is so intense, it starts from obviously the first jhana that the body feels like vibrating with goosebumps that are sustained extend uh, you know in an extended manner um and the mind meanwhile is, is still agitated by the way but there's the sense of joy pleasure it's not as intense uh because there's the introduction of tranquility coming in you're sensing it more and more than you did before in the first genre uh, because we're moving towards Upekka, which is down the line in the fourth jhana and up. So, uh, moving on. Further, Anurudha, whenever you reflect on these eight thoughts of a great man, then for as long as you wish, while equanimity grows within the mind and the joy subsides, you will abide dispassionate but mindful and fully aware as you experience the soothing relaxation within the body. Mindful and fully aware. This, the jhanas used to be practiced at the time of the uh, Buddha, even when he was not a, the Buddha, he was uh, um, just a meditator, an ascetic. This is what distinguishes the jhanas practiced by Lord Buddha, taught by Lord Buddha after his awakening. This is how he even became an arahant, a buddha. He kept being aware of what was happening in the mind versus what to this day in some uh, to some level is being practiced in, um, um, in India and other places where the mind goes into uh, complete, like there's a lockdown, if you will. There is no mindfulness of what's happening in the body, in the mind. You're just locked in and gone in a sense. If somebody comes over with a hacksaw and cuts off a limb, you won't feel it. Well, there, where, where's the wisdom then? How, how can we gain from these jhanas? So jhanas, as taught by Lord Buddha, I'm not talking about the commentaries, you know, like when you go to Buddha, Venerable Buddha Gosha or the Suddhimaga, there's, it goes, veers off into those other traditions that the Buddha didn't want to have anything to do with. And Venerable Buddha Gosha brought those because he was a Hindu, actually, a Brahmin. From, uh, and then he came and became a Buddhist and then he fell in love with it. But he brought those understandings that he had collected from India when he went to, uh, to Sri Lanka and he wrote the Visuddhimagga. So many of those elements come from there. Unfortunately, they permeated throughout the Buddhist uh, circles in Southeast Asia and elsewhere. So that's where we have a long period of time where there was a confusion about the jhanas up until recently when people went back to the suttas and left the commentaries where they need to be on the shelf most of the time. Um, I mean, they're there because, I mean, they, they can be very helpful, but not when it comes to just delving into the labyrinth or mazes of, of, of commentators' minds. We need to go back to the sutta 
the discourses that are, uh, however pure they still happen to be in a pure state, that is. So coming back, thus you will enter and abide in the third jhana of which the noble ones declare, mindfully one abides equanimous, experiencing happiness throughout. So you're seeing these states of mind as they occur. And another good sutta to uh, look at or to listen to is the um, Anupada Sutta from the Majjhima Nikaya, the Middle Length Discourses, uh, Sutta number 111, 111, where Venerable Sariputta goes through one after the other of these suttas. I mean, I'm sorry, the, the, the jhanas, up until the, uh, the, the cessation. Um, so let's let's move forward further on Rudha, whenever you reflect on these eight thoughts of a great man then for as long as you wish as you dispel your attachment to happiness and sadness and having already gone beyond joy and pain you will enter and abide in the fourth jhana here you will feel the freedom from whatever is pleasant and whatever is painful as you experience the purifying effect that mindfulness has brought you as you rest in equanimity. We live in a culture or throughout our lives, we've been taught that we need to seek the pleasant, those things that cause us happiness and we should shun, minimize the chances of the painful to occur. But we're basically going from one extreme of the pendulum to the other. And so long as that cradle action, I like to call it, is taking place. The mind is never going to reach that state of calmness, the tranquility, which will take us to experience freedom from samsara. So this is where the defilements, or, or you can even call it mara, the great evil, deceptive one, um, plays a number on us throughout life. especially in the context of the fourth jhana, because here is where things really get interesting. Because the mind reaches a point of stillness that is unprecedented up to this point. Oftentimes, um, um, the, we see in the suttas how the fourth jhana is used as like a launching pad for going in and you know, getting into psychic abilities and things like that. But the Buddha never really um, cared for those much. You know, he mentions them, of course, in several suttas, but ultimately his point was always to cut through sansara and attain arahantship first. Forget about everything else. If the rest are going to follow, fine. But this is not a state of indifference, mind you. When we say beyond the state of pleasant, experiencing the pleasant, or the painful, because typical uh, uh, misunderstanding is, oh, so the person is now indifferent, is like an automaton, is like a machine. No. Anything but. Uh, but you see these as they occur. You understand there's a deeper understanding of the Brahma Viharas, for example. But you're not pulled in. You have tremendous karuna. You remember, Upeka is the 
uh, within the Brahma Viharas is the last one, Metta Karuna Mudita Upekha. It's like the culmination of all the other three, if you will. So, um, by the way, I uh, would like to finish uh, the, the sutta and then um, um, have you guys ask uh, questions. Um, so I, I request that you write your question down about whatever segment it is uh, that you want us to address and we'll go back to that. And I don't have you on the screen, so I apologize if, if uh, you're putting up a hand and I can't see it. Um, so once we're done with the suttas, that's when um, you'll get a chance to, uh, to uh, address your questions. So, uh, further, Anuruddha, whenever you reflect on these eight thoughts of a great man and by merely intending it and without any difficulty, you quickly attain these four jhanas, which constitute the higher mind, adhichitta as they are pleasant resting way stations on the path resting way stations they're not something that we pitch our tent or actually construct the rest of our lives on and thinking that's it i have reached the fourth jhana or first jhana and that's it I've, I've completed the holy life it has been achieved no it hasn't um so these are resting way stations on the path, then while living in such a state of contentment, even your rag robe will become for you like a multicolored and richly decorated robe worn by a rich householder or his son. Rag robes, because uh, there is the practice of one of the Dutangas, uh, you might call them severe practices, where a bhikkhu uh, says that he's only going to wear robes that he had picked up from uh, cremation ground from the cemetery basically uh the the cloth that they would wrap or they still do wrap corpses in um, and they're usually white and then they would take those clean them shake off the dirt or whatever it had and then wash them thoroughly um, so that it can accept the dye and they would use a jackfruit the heart of a jackfruit or so that they can um, add the color so but over time because the bhikkhu has only those three robes to cover himself and to sleep on use as covers etc they start to you know erode they just weather and just like you know natural process so they turn into rag robes and that's what lord buddha is referring to here for the bhikkhu, even those rags that he wears will give him such a tremendous satisfaction as if it's like embroidered, you know, fine fabric, uh, silk or whatever that is suitable for a rich householder or his son. Um, that's how the person sees it and feels it and wears it. That's the most important part. For your robe will be enough for you as it satisfies your delight, giving you a sense of relief, comfort, and a pleasant abiding as you enter into Nibbana. As you enter into Nibbana. Having that mindset will take you to Nibbana. But if we have come across any of the teachings of Lord Buddha, uh, being the wonderful, amazing par excellence teacher that he was, 
he would always offer more just in case maybe the student might need this other paragraph so let's move on further anuruddha whenever you reflect on these eight thoughts of a great man and by merely intending it and without any difficulty you quickly attain these four jhanas by the way merely intending it Many people think that in order for you to reach uh, or experience the jhanas, you have to really struggle and push and push in order for you to get each through into each of these jhanas. If the person has been practicing the jhanas long enough, then all they have to do is just to intend it and boom, they're in the first or fourth or even higher jhanas. That's uh, uh, how it works if there is enough practice um, so the mere intentionality brings about that state of because your mind has gotten used to that it knows what upekka is in full force <laughs> meaning the fourth fourth jhana it knows how it feels so it's, it just comfies itself into it so i wanted to add that in there Again, which uh, the four jhanas, which constitute the higher mind as they are pleasant resting way stations on the path. So this is where it repeats itself. But in all the translations and recordings I've been doing on uh, for YouTube, um, for, for you to have free access to, I've always kept those repetitions. So I don't, I advise you not to, you know, skip these. They're very important. The repetitions are very important, folks. If the Buddha put it there, we need to keep them. He did it for a certain reason. And no, it's not just the monks that later on added, uh, like some commentators have said recently. So uh, as there are pleasant resting way stations on the path, then while living in such a state of contentment, even the scraps of food you have for a meal will become for you like a richly flavored meal prepared for a rich wealthy householder or his son together with fine rice and various grains as well as various soups and curries for your scraps of food will be enough for you as it satisfies your delight giving you a sense of relief comfort and a pleasant abiding as you enter into nibbana the food that a bhikkhu eats the way Lord Buddha advises us is once we've uh, shared the blessings of the food to the donor, whoever put something in there, and then we look at it, there's a moment that we have to take before consuming it. And in it, we are, there's also a series of verses, like a few lines, where we say um, in English, um, uh, with proper wise attention, I am looking at the food and I do not take it. I do not consume it for beauty, for its taste, for the pleasures that I'm looking forward to, uh, to experiencing it, nor for beautifying my body, but simply to extend the life of this body and the aggregate so that I could attain the arahantship. <laughs> That's why my attitude in eating this remains blameless anavajata it's it's a beautiful uh, verse so that way you can maintain the mindfulness 
even while you're chewing. And they say that Lord Buddha, when he ate rice or food, not even a single grain of rice would go down his throat without having been touched with mindfulness and his teeth. <laughs> he would touch each of those grains while it was being chewed in his mouth. At least once with mindfulness as it got gulped down. So that is the spirit that we bhikkhus aspire uh, to experience and, and, and to maintain. Because that also takes us straight to Nibbana, as we see here mentioned. So the bhikkhu doesn't care what it is in the food. It might be very bland, like soup or something. When they were used to eating like very sumptuous meals, there's no, there's, they can't contrast anymore. Because they're seeing this as simply feeding the five great, uh, four great elements, earth, water, fire, and air within the body that maintain these, at least the nama rupa to maintain and to um, the rupa, I'm sorry, a portion of it. And then the nama comes in uh, with the feelings and memory being supported with the help of the body being nourished properly. So, uh, further Anuruddha, whenever you reflect on these eight thoughts of a great man, and by merely intending it and without any difficulty, you quickly attain these four jhanas, which constitute the higher mind, as they are pleasant resting way stations on the path. Then, while living in such a state of contentment, even your dwelling, that may be the root of a tree, Mularukha, the word is, it's like the root of a tree, will become for you like a richly gabled house, suitable for a rich householder or his son, beautifully plastered, painted and decorated, with many doors and windows, with bolts and shutters to close and keep you protected from the elements outside. For your dwelling at the root of a tree will be enough for you as it satisfies your delight, giving you a sense of relief, comfort, and a pleasant abiding as you enter into Nibbana. Imagine that, the freedom that being outside, not being confined to any four walls. Now, this is not something that, this is one of the Dutangas, of course, and we're um you're 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 an open sky dweller sometimes they're called and there's there's a step higher to this by the way where the even staying uh, sitting under uh dwelling under a tree at the root of a tree for some bhikkhus might seem like a luxury <laughs> for us it's it's like funny almost but it's uh because the tree does give us shelter from the rain the sun etc um and also having like you know it, it gives us the backing which is a sense of safety security uh when we sit uh, with our backs to the tree they've done experiments on this and they've seen that having our back against something rests the central nervous system better than having our back being completely open um especially with trauma patients they've seen you know huge number of differences in their experiments with or without it so but living in the open air in a sense open sky you have complete 360 view 
and no protection. So that's um, a tongue as well. Further, Anurudha, whenever you reflect on these eight thoughts of a great man and by merely intending it and without any difficulty, you quickly attain these four jhanas which constitute the higher mind as they are pleasant resting way stations on the path, then while living in such a state of contentment, even your bed and cushion made up of straw and grass will become for you like a finely decorated bed and a cushion suitable for a rich householder or his son. Supported by a canopy above and a set of red bolsters at both ends, decked with blankets and exquisite pillows, all covered with antelope hide, which is very soft. For your bed and cushion made of straw and grass will be enough for you as they satisfy your delight, giving you a sense of relief, comfort, and a pleasant abiding as you enter into Nibbana. So even your resting place where you sleep. Further, and this was a prince he's talking to. Anuruddha was a prince, just like he was. Um, so they were very pampered growing up. And it wasn't like they became like samanas or novice monks at a young age. No, they had enjoyed all the that was available to the five senses. So it's a huge contrast when you think of it from that world into this. So we're beyond being Spartan here. <laughs> In, 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 in what is available to us. Further, Anurudha, whenever you reflect on these eight thoughts of a great man, and by merely intending it, and without any difficulty, you quickly attain these four jhanas, which constitute the higher mind, as they are pleasant resting way stations on the path. Then, while living in such a state of contentment, even your medicine of putrid and fermented cow's urine will become for you like various medicines prepared with fine quality purified ghee, butter, oil and honey suitable for a rich householder or his son. Yes, uh, when I heard this years ago, like almost three, you know, 30 years ago, I was like putrid, fermented cow urine. Why? Um, but that was the something that you know they they dry it they boil it and then they turn it into paste and which they can carry with them so if they had headaches or something they would apply some of it so apparently it has some medicinal qualities uh, to this day there are some bhikkhus who do that although i never came across them uh in my travels but uh, you know i'm sure they're uh, you know i've heard that they are there and so uh, for your medicine of putrid and fermented cow's urine will be enough for you as it satisfies your delight, giving you a sense of relief, comfort, and a pleasant abiding as you enter into Nibbana. Therefore, Anuruddha, you should stay here among the Chetis in the Eastern Bamboo Park for your next rain's retreat. This is the instruction that Lord Buddha gave. This is the logistical part. When the Buddha gave an instruction like this, or any of the Arya Savakas to their students, uh, that says something. It's almost like a guarantee that you keep doing what you're doing. 
and think about the nipapancha, meaning the non-proliferation of thoughts as your eighth thought of a great man. Use that, but you need to spend the next vasa here, which is basically like a year, but the vasa is three months period. So stay here, he says, for the next year and practice diligently. And venerable, which means that you keep doing this, you're going to become one of us, an arahant. And Venerable Anuruddha, delightful, uh, delighted, says, Yes, Bhante. And the Blessed One, having inspired, encouraged, and aroused the Venerable Anuruddha's energy to continue on the path with diligent effort, as quickly as a strong man would extend out his bent arm and bend or bend his extended arm, suddenly disappeared bef from before the Venerable Anuruddha from the eastern bamboo forest in the land of the Chetis and reappeared among the Sumsumara peaks in the land of the Bhaggas at the Deer Park in the Bhesakala forest. Then the Blessed One sat on his prepared seat as he addressed the bhikkhus thus. Bhikkhus, there are these eight thoughts of a great man. Listen to them as I list them for you and attend carefully. Yes, Bhante replied the bhikkhus. And what are the eight thoughts of a great man, bhikkhus? So he lists all those. I'm not going to list them because I want to uh, make the most of our time and give you guys time to ask questions. Um, he lists all those seven that Venerable Anuruddha listed, plus the eighth of um, the non-proliferation of thought. And then he elaborates here. And what bhikkhus was meant by the statement, this dhamma is for one with few desires? and not for the one with many desires. Here, bhikkhus, when the bhikkhu is of few desires, he does not trouble himself with the thought. Oh, may others know that I am with few desires. Basically the opposite of what today's influencer society is trying to have us do. We do something, we feed the dog, and all of a sudden there's a picture of it that we post it, and everyone needs to know that we're doing this. And sadly, with all this pandemic, and you know, I've seen so many people doing lovely things uh, um, to people, let's say taking food, getting medicine. Unfortunately, though, the intention might say something else, because as if there's like a whole camera crew waiting for them to take the shot of them handing the food to these people. Why? Let that just, that action be beautiful, not, don't sully it. If the intention was to actually make another human being healthy and happy and not put yourself out there, which what today's culture promotes. So, uh, and by the way, it's not just non-Buddhist circles. It's, I've seen this a lot, especially with, within the monastic communities uh, in Asia and elsewhere. So, number two, while being con uh, content and satisfied, he does not trouble himself with the thought, oh, may others know that I am content and satisfied. Showing off, basically. Who cares if other people knew or not? Like, I'm content and satisfied. That's all that matters. They're going to reap the benefits too, because my actions are going to simply reflect that. My words are going to reflect that. Three, while being comfortable with and looking for seclusion, 
He does not trouble himself with the thought, oh, may others know that I delight in seclusion. There's a one uh, teacher, um, not from the tarot of the tradition, um, who is very well known nowadays, apparently, and uh, wherever he goes, there's a, like a group of cameramen and, and, you know, doing a documentary. And uh, I was excited to see that he was going to go into seclusion. That's what his students had been saying and posting. And then there was like a, a preview of what this going to be, which was strange for me. What do you mean by prelude or preview? And then I saw that throughout those three months or one year, the camera crew was going to be, be with him recording every day. Where does the seclusion part come in here? Like, you know, what, what's, what's happening with that? And because there are segments of it um, that they were showing in this very short clip from different time periods of that one year. So that was like, you know, I had to scratch my head over that one. So that's not what this is um, that the Buddha is advocating for us. So the opposite of that. In uh, number four, in being diligent with aroused effort, he does not trouble himself with the thought. Oh, may others know that I am diligent with aroused effort. Similarly, five, in being established in continuous mindfulness, he does not trouble himself with the thought. Oh, may others know that I am established in continuous mindfulness. Six, while dwelling in the stability of the heart, he does not trouble himself with the thought. Oh, may others know that I dwell in the stability of the heart. Seven, in being wise, the bhikkhu does not trouble himself with the thought, oh, may others know that I am wise. And eight, while delighting in and enjoying the non-proliferation of concepts, he does not trouble himself with the thought, oh, may others know that I delight in and enjoy the non-proliferation of thoughts. Therefore, bhikkhus, this is what was meant with the statement, this dhamma is for one with few desires and not for the one with many desires. And what bhikkhus was meant by the statement, this dhamma is for one content and satisfied and not for one who is discontent or dissatisfied? Here, the bhikkhu is content and satisfied with whatever he may obtain, whether in the type of robes, scraps of morsels of food, dwellings, and any medical requisites when needed, which he received. Therefore, because this is what was meant with the statement, this dhamma is for one content and satisfied, and not for one who is discontent or dissatisfied. And what bhikkhus was meant by the statement this dhamma is for one who looks for seclusion and not for one who delights in company or enjoys associating with others? Here, the bhikkhu, the secluded bhikkhu, may be approached by bhikkhus, bhikkhunis, male and female lay disciples, kings and their ministers, those of other sects and their disciples. But while being surrounded by such visitors, the bhikkhu's mind naturally flows inward. Um, a word that we have is openayiko. Uh, it's very, you know, it's the same thing. As it has the organic disposition to include, uh, to incline and be directed to seclusion. For his mind delights in constantly giving up and withdrawing into and delighting in renunciation. And while he speaks to them with 
this underlying intention of dismissing them. <laughs> so he doesn't say, okay, you guys, okay, leave me alone, but they're just trying to, the bhikkhu is trying to say what needs to be said to set them on their way and just, he can go and just go in back into that state. So he wants to send them away as soon as possible. Therefore, because this is what was meant with the statement, this Dhamma is for one who looks for seclusion and not for one who delights in the company or enjoys associating with others. We are social beings, but that is what's on the mundane level. As we go deeper and deeper and deeper into the practice and our lives start to reflect the Dhamma, they reflect all the, you know, the characteristics of the triple gem in a sense. The mind wants to become more and more secluded. Suddenly, even those individuals that you really like, you really love, you'll take them in smaller doses. You won't be taking them like, you know, wholesale, as it were. So you will seek out those moments where you're just by yourself and allowing the mind to settle more and more and more because you're tasting something that is super mundane. And what because was meant by the statement, this Dhamma is for one who is diligent with aroused effort, not for the lazy. Here the bhikkhu lives diligent and with aroused effort as he abandons unwholesome behaviors and develops wholesome ones, staying resolute and committed to his practice on the path, while being firmly determined not to give up the main aim of doing and cultivating wholesome and good actions. Therefore, because this is what was meant with the statement, the Dhamma is for one who is diligent with aroused effort, not for the lazy. Self-explanatory. And what because was meant by the statement, this Dhamma is for one established in continuous mindfulness, not for one lacking in mindfulness. Here, the bhikkhu possesses and maintains awareness of himself and his thoughts in a continuous manner, always bearing in mind and recollecting things pondered upon, heard, done, and said from long ago. So you're looking at them, but you're not being pulled into them. You're aware. And as these come into your purview, into your screen of awareness, the mind of the bhikkhu is also picking up what these thoughts are, these memories, sanya, are generating in the body or in the feeling, vedana. What is this generating? Is there like or dislike? Is there love or hate towards these things? And you're even observing those instead of siding with either one. And then the bhikkhu's mind is also paying attention as to whether these things will take off and go into sankharas. They will get into mental formations, into constructions of new ideas, basically papanchas, mental proliferation of thoughts. So you are basically practicing the satipatthana in either way, because remember, as I was saying earlier, these things constantly shapeshift. The awareness goes somewhere, um, the, the, the consciousness rather goes into different ones. Once it's the body sensation feeling and all of a sudden it switches to a memory that came. And now you're pulled into feeling some way. And why am I feeling that? Oh yes, because of the memory. 
or you're pulled away completely from your uh, object of meditation. So the meditator who's practicing the Satipatthana, the seven establishments, seven factors of awake, uh, seven um, factors of mindfulness, I'm sorry, four foundations of mindfulness, sorry, the numbers, four foundations of mindfulness, body, feeling, mind, chitta, and dhamma, the relationship of phenomena of these principles. Then you're always with it. You're always observing. That is what is being meant here by the statement of continuous mindfulness carried through all throughout. And what Bhikkhus was meant by the statement, this Dhamma is for the one who has the stability of the heart, not for the distracted. Here, the Bhikkhu, by secluding the mind from sensual desires and unwholesome states of mind, enters and abides in the first jhana. Uh, so he goes through all these jhanas like he did with, Lord, uh, with Venerable uh, Anuruddha. So I won't read that because I've already read it today and I want to save time. Uh, and then he, he, so he goes through the whole list of the four jhanas. And then he goes, and what bhikkhus was meant by the statement, this dhamma is for the wise, not for those lacking in wisdom. Here, the bhikkhu is wise as he possesses the discernment, the wisdom, to see the arising and the vanishing of the five aggregates as they truly are and come to be. And this penetrative noble wisdom leads the bhikkhu to the complete destruction of all suffering. The five aggregates. Remember I was mentioning how they, sh they shift. Sometimes it's the body, all of a sudden it's the feeling, uh, and then the memory. But we won't know any of these things from, you know, that, that might be occurring, and they are occurring all the time. If there's no mindfulness, if there is no invested energy into observing them and not letting them pass us by without any drop of awareness of them. That's where the wisdom is going to come in and allow us to see the suffering that the aggregates bring, because the aggregates, the khandas, are suffering. The cure is the Dhamma. The practice is, practice of the Dhamma is cure. Otherwise, the aggregates will never give us anything um, that is un, uh, that, that is the opposite of impermanent, meaning permanent. The aggregates can never give us anything other than instability, emptiness, unreliability, and impermanence, and dukkha, suffering. So moving on, and what bhikkhus was meant by the statement, this Dhamma is for the one who delights in the non-proliferation of thoughts, the one who enjoys non-proliferation of ideas or concepts, and not for those who delight in the constant proliferation of thoughts, or the ones who enjoy the constant proliferation of ideas or concepts. Here, the bhikkhus mind is clear, calmly confident, and energized as it decidedly finds liberation through the ceasing of all proliferation. Therefore, bhikkhus, this is what was meant with the statement, this Dhamma is for the one who delights in non-proliferation of thoughts. And it continues, uh, ends the sentence like I just read up there. Uh, and then um, Sutta goes, Meanwhile, as instructed 
and while following the teacher's guidance, the Venerable Anuruddha spent the following rains retreat as well in the eastern bamboo forest among the Chaitis. Then the Venerable Anuruddha, while living alone, secluded and withdrawn from the crowd, energetic and diligently working while maintaining continuity of mindfulness throughout, before long, he realized for himself directly with unshakable wisdom and through his own efforts, the supreme goal of the holy life, for the purpose of which good sons of families rightfully leave the household life and go forth, becoming homeless. And by entering upon it, he dwelled in that unshakable serenity of the heart. Right then, he knew for himself, birth is now finally destroyed. The holy life has been lived. Whatever work that had to be done has now been completed. There is no more return to any state of becoming. Thus the Venerable Anuruddha became one of the Arahats. And right at that moment he uttered these majestic verses. The Supreme Teacher in the universe came to me with his psychic powers, having seen my thoughts, delighting in non-proliferation himself. The teacher taught me his own disciple in non-proliferation. Now having learned his Dhamma, I delight in having done his bidding, for I have now attained the three knowledges, and with it I completed my duty in the Lord's dispensation. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. By the way, the three knowledges is, uh, are the, um, the knowledge of one's own past lives, as well, and the second one, is, they, they just show up. Um, and the second one is the knowledge of knowing um, the death and birth of beings in different realms. And when, when the person is dying, the, the Arahant will know where their destination will be. It's like watching a, a channel, TV channel, and you just have the remote and you just look and you see basically. All they have to do is, is look at that or intend it. And the third one is the knowledge of the destruction of the contaminants, the asavas. Asavakaya, the destruction of the contaminants. So it was a long uh, sutta, and I tried to squeeze it in in our time that we have, but uh, it's a wonderful sutta, as you can tell. Um, but I will pause here and, and open up for questions. Again, please jump in and turn your camera on so I can see you when, when, I'm, uh, when we're hearing you. No questions? Or comments? Oh. Yes, someone's speaking. Uh, maybe I could ask a question? Yes. 
Um, thank you, Bhante. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, there seems to be a strain of, uh, well, this is a superficial comment, but of uh, being an ascetic, you know, uh, asceticism that runs through, you know, many of the um, points that you, you know, bring up, you know, weekly and especially today with the uh, sadhu, <clears throat> you know, living under the tree. And I had bought a book one time where they have all these Indian sadhus. I think they're, they're not necessarily Buddhist, but, you know, some are living under trees or in the <clears throat> cremation grounds, mm -hmm. uh, various places. Um, is this, is uh, asceticism uh, seems to be necessary for across many uh, belief systems, uh, including Buddhism, uh, is the purpose to basically make you divorce from, um, you know, material things, uh, desire and so forth. Uh, and then of course, it kind of refocuses your energy. It seems to actually well, I'm not a strong person, so it seems uh, very difficult to um, to actually, you know, carry out unless you are a bhikkhu or you have a certain level of commitment uh, and so forth. Mm -hmm. So I was just wondering whether you could talk more about the ascetic type of mm -hmm. maybe tradition in, you know, many of the, uh, of the comments that yeah. you've made. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Mm -hmm. uh, asceticism is definitely uh, part of uh, the um, the teaching, but how? Um, let me say it this way: Is there um, the presence of wisdom in it or not? So the asceticism, the way that the the um, Buddhist path. Um, has uh, begun and has flourished throughout the centuries was done because of the understanding that uh, not asceticism by itself per se minus the wisdom but in conjunction with now uh, asceticism or renunciation um, like Nick Kama, for example is um, uh, a way to, yes, turn your back on what this material world keeps on telling you that you need in order for you to be happy. In that sense, absolutely. So long as a person is, uh, you know, the material world has its claws in you and you're always engaged in getting more of pleasant experiences and less of uh, painful experiences, then you are basically being had. You're completely deceived and you are just a puppy. You're, you're not a puppy, you're a puppet uh, in the hands of the five aggregates. So let's not fool ourselves into thinking that Buddhism is just a matter of us making some donation, going and doing pujas, and then I can just submerge myself back into the deep waters of life in the sense of, of the sensual, sensual world and be in the cradle again, going from one extreme and life comes and says, nobody come over here. I'm going to give you some, some pain because 
we are latching on to things that are devoid of wisdom because I'm latching on to my uh, six senses. I want to see beautiful things only, not ugly. I want to taste only great things, delicious things, etc., <coughs> etc. Et so, so long as a person is in that world, spirituality is far from that person. Now, this is the life that actually uh, all of these princes, including Lord Buddha, lived. They, they had so much luxury that we cannot even dream of today. People living in the Buckingham Palace in the UK cannot comprehend the level of uh, luxury that they had. There's one bhikkhu who was so pampered uh, and he was lifted off the ground. He didn't even have to go to the bathroom. They had to, his servants and people in the palaces, one of the, you know, many palaces. So they would take him to the bathroom. They would do everything for him, everything. And to the point where the bottom of his feet actually had started growing hair. Imagine that. And then years later, when he became, he realized the emptiness of all this because he was still unfulfilled. That's the dukkha part. Now, having said these things, and by the way, he becomes a bhikkhu and he goes and he does chankama, walking meditation. And because his feet were not used to walking, suddenly he's walking and he's got so much energy, virya, and he's really diligently wanting to attain and understand that his feet started to bleed. And that's when the Buddha introduced, uh, you know, that those bhikkhus who don't want to walk barefoot, they can actually wear slippers. We owe it to this bhikkhu. <laughs> uh, but coming back to whether asceticism is absolutely necessary for us to taste the Dhamma, no. Now, what I mean by that is there needs to be the understanding as a layperson, because many, many, many of the Lord Buddha's disciples were lay disciples, upasakas and upasikas many of whom had reached the first stage of awakening, Sotapanna, the second stage of awakening, Sakadagami, which is a once-returner, as well as a non-returner, Anagami. So please don't, you know, let's not fool ourselves into thinking that, no, if I'm in life, if I have responsibilities, then this Dhamma is not for me. No, that's just your defilements talking. So it's not an approach of either or, because there is that either or tone in your question. It's either black or white. It's I'm either that, no, 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 no. There needs to be wisdom applied, meaning can I maintain my responsibilities as a lay person by keeping sila? Sila. I know you've taken the five precepts. How much are we practicing five sila? Many people take it every day, but when it comes, push comes to shove during the day, it goes out the window. That is the opportunity for you to really be practicing the Dhamma as a lay person who enjoys fine dining. Okay. Uh, two, is there practice or am I wasting my time? When I sit, am I playing with my ideas, my papanchas? Or am I genuinely sitting for those 30 minutes, 45 minutes, or whatever, hour? 
So is there truthfulness or am I just like, you know, winging it? And this will take us to wisdom. So these three trainings are there available to all of us, whether bhikkhu or not. But unfortunately, we never many of uh, individuals, bhikkhu and otherwise, again, many people do not approach the practice of Dhamma as they would approach driving a car, for example, or doing your job. You're a professor, you teach. Can you one day, you know, not start to wing it when you're teaching classes, the lesson plans, the assignments, and just, yeah, I'm going to give this person an A, you're soon going to be fired. Right? So you take your job much, much more seriously than you would the Dhamma. That's the problem. So it's not the fact that you're a layperson that you're not attaining or whatever. No, it's the attitude. The lay life does not exclude a person from attaining at all. It's the attitude that we have towards the practice and that's unfortunately in this case detrimental to our progress. We have more attention being given to cooking, to paying our bills, to make sure that when we're writing those zeros down in the check or whatever, or putting in our PIN number in our ATM machine, we are very much aware. We're so mindful, so sharp. And we check the numbers. Is that the right amount of money that I have in my bank account? Now, if we can just bring a one one thousandth of that awareness into our daily lives, as the thoughts are going all over the place, that's when we get closer to experiencing the Dhamma. So it's not the robes that make a person awakened. There's hundreds of thousands of bhikkhus and you know, bhikkhunis now. And uh, I know Ajahn Mahabhu, I would say, the hell realms are full of bhikkhus and bhikkhunis. What does that say? So it's not, and he was an arahant, by the way. He could, he could, you know, he could validate that. So um, let us bring the attention back where it needs to be, not on the asceticism part. That's not the issue. It's how much am I able to maintain my mindfulness and awareness and responsibility in living my life. Many people are more responsible in making sure the mask is on before they leave the house. They checking their numbers, everything. Who, where am I going to go? What am I going to touch? Sterilizing themselves to bits, sanitizing themselves to bits where white cells are not even working anymore, white blood cells. So we have more dedication to that than we do for the Dhamma, because it's like a very like, yeah, sure, it's there like an insurance policy that you keep paying premiums to once a month. I was expecting it to be there when push comes to shove, maybe. So that is what I would offer uh, in response to that. I hope it's helpful. Yeah, it is helpful. Mm -hmm. Any other thoughts, comments, questions? What's the time?
Um, I want to add about Venerable Anuruddha, after he became an Arahant, um, for years people were asking him, how, Bhante, did you become an Arahant? And he always, always, always explained it by using the uh, Satipatthana, he would say, thanks to the Satipatthana. There's several suttas in the Sanyutanikaya and elsewhere. There's short suttas compared to this one. Um, and um, they always are like leading the person back to, please don't underestimate the power of mindfulness, the four Satipatthanas. He's like, wherever I went, whatever I did, Sati was with me, he says. So that to me was uh, when I first read it some time ago, it was very, very uh, encouraging because I noticed in my own practice years ago, for, for many years actually, I was just dedicating my Sati as if to one portion of my day. No one had taught me this, but it's just, I was thinking that that's how it's supposed to be done. And then when I was reading the suttas and pondering them and going over them, I saw that, no, it has to be reflected throughout one's life. Even when you think that it's not appropriate, perhaps, or necessary. That's another one that the defilements love. Just as a side note. Any other thoughts, questions before we close? I can't see hands, so if you have something, just come on, say it. Okay. So let us uh, dedicate merits. May suffering ones be suffering free, and the fear struck fearless be. May the grieving shed all grief, and may all beings find health relief. May all beings share in these merits that we have thus acquired for the acquisition and achievement of all kinds of wholesome happiness. May beings inhabiting space and earth, devas and nagas of mighty power, share in these merits. May they long protect the Buddha's dispensation. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. Thank you for being here. Thank you uh, for putting in the effort. But uh, today's sutta and other suttas before and are, that are to come, may they help us to reevaluate our position, our attitude towards the practice, and create that eagerness to end suffering. The Dhamma is in the heart, so is the so are the defilements, therefore so is the suffering, true suffering. So I wish, I, my hope is that your practice will develop and so we can attain the highest goal of the holy life. May you be well. See you next week.